0: 1 Samuel 1, verses 1 through 7. We're actually going to be looking at uh, most of chapters 1 and 2, but reading from chapter 1, verse 1. Now there was a certain man of Ramathayim, Zophim, of the mountains of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Joraham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zoph, an Ephraimite. And he had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, And the name of the other was Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. This man went up from his city yearly to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. Also, the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there. And whenever the time came for Elkanah to make an offering, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah. Although the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival also provoked her severely to make her miserable because the Lord had closed her womb. So it was year by year when she went up to the house of the Lord that she provoked her. Therefore she wept and did not eat. Father, I thank you that you include in your word uh, many situations that approximate some of the pains and the difficulties that we go through, that you sympathize, you care for our burdens, and we can cast our burdens at your feet. I thank you for this passage, and I pray that as I open it up, you would enable me to faithfully preach your word and for each of us to be encouraged in your grace. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we come today to the story of Hannah, And I find parts of her story to be very painful, perhaps because of my own boarding school experience. Uh, Though she was seeking to serve and honor the Lord in her decision, we want to acknowledge that. Uh, There is something very strange about asking Eli, who was an absolutely lousy parent, to raise her son Samuel and uh, for her to actually admit uh, her son into an incredibly perverse environment at the tabernacle. We'll look at that. We're gonna look at the good and the bad in her parenting. I was actually not going to preach on Hannah at all, uh, but Marianne uh, convinced me that this lady still has a lot of wonderful things she can uh, teach us on how to live by faith in the midst of our uh, pain, great emotional pain. And really, even on the issue of her sending her son into uh, the the tabernacle, a very, very bad environment, she really did it out of the purest of intentions with a sacrificial heart to serve the Lord. And I'm sure it pained her as much as it pained Samuel to be separated at that time. So I can certainly understand where she was coming from, just like I long ago came to total peace uh, about... Uh, the purity of my parents' intentions and their very God-centered willingness to sacrifice their own personal desires. Uh, It was extremely painful for my parents uh, to send their kids to boarding school. It was really required by the mission agency. They didn't have a choice. In any case, it's important that we examine both the good and the bad in her decisions and to not judge her with, you know, hindsight. Hindsight's always greater than foresight. And so I wanted you to realize, I'm coming at this story from a slightly jaundiced perspective, uh, but I've grown to really appreciate what Hannah did get right. Who was Hannah? Well, she was the mother of the prophet of Samuel, who wrote three books of the Bibles. Um, uh, He was anointing two kings of Israel. He founded the school of the prophets. He was considered to be the last of the judges and perhaps the greatest of the judges. And because Samuel turned out so great, I mean, he really was an amazing man in many ways. Uh, Many books treat Hannah as if she must have been a model mother. Uh, Well, I beg to disagree. I think there were aspects of her motherhood that we can imitate. But before we look at the good, let's consider why giving her son to the tabernacle at such a young age was a very ill-advised plan. First, the tabernacle of that day was filled with debauchery. It was a very bad environment for an impressionable young boy. And I want to spend just a few minutes looking at how serious things had gotten under the high priest's uh, oversight and within his family, and hopefully each of these points will show why it was really not a good idea to let uh, Eli uh, adopt Samuel, and uh, most of this comes from 1 Samuel chapter 2. We're going to read quite a bit of this chapter in a bit, but let me give you some highlights. Verse 12 says that his sons were corrupt. Now, the literal rendering of that word for corrupt means that they were sons of Belial, and if you look up that phrase sons of Belial in the Hebrew wherever it occurs you realize this was a treacherous very untrustworthy individual it was not the kind of individual you would ever want your sons your daughters associating or hanging around with 2 Corinthians 6:15 says and what accord has Christ with Belial or what part has a believer with an unbeliever uh, a son of Belial was a very sketchy person now they were priests uh, but they did not know God. They obviously knew about God because they were supposedly ministering on His behalf all the time, but they did not know God. There's a big difference, even in our own lives, between knowing about God and knowing Him. And apparently Eli had never reached his children's heart uh, hearts with the gospel, and yet here's another child that's going to be entrusted to his scare. It's scary. In verses 13 through 15, we see that his sons were self-indulgent. And that didn't just start happening when they were adults. Uh, The word custom in those uh, verses indicates this had been going on for a long, long time and gives us a hint that this self-indulgence had started at a very young age. These kinds of patterns develop young. And these verses also show theft, abuse of office, lawlessness, and bullying. Uh, Look, for example, at verses 13 through 14. This is chapter 2. And the priest's custom with the people was that when any man offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged flesh hook in his hand while the meat was boiling, then he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, and the priest would take for himself all that the flesh hook brought up. So they did in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Now this was robbing the people of what was rightfully theirs, and a prophet later says so. The priests were not supposed to get any of the people's portion. Okay, they had their own portion. It was the breast and the right thigh, and uh, they were not supposed to take anything else. The rest was offered to the Lord or eaten by the worshiper, but they were taking more than their fair share. Verse 15, "...also before they burned the fat, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who sacrificed, "'Give meat for roasting to the priest, for he will not take boiled meat from you, but raw.'" This is wrong on three counts. Uh, first of all, they weren't supposed to eat any of the fat. A hundred percent of the fat was supposed to go to the Lord. It was the best portion, right, of the sacrifice. Exodus 29:13 and 22, Leviticus 3:17, Leviticus 7:23 and 24. There's a lot of verses indicate that. A uh, second, they were not supposed to eat anything that was to be sacrificed to the Lord, but they did. And then, third, they weren't supposed to take anything for themselves until after the offering had been made. And to do otherwise would be to really destroy the gospel message that was inherent in those sacrifices. It was really tearing the guts out of the gospel story. So they weren't looking to the word of God for how they ruled the church. Verse 16 And if the man said to him, They should really burn the fat first, then you may take as much as your heart desires. He would then answer them, no, but you must give it to me now, and if not, I will take it by force. There was no accountability of these sons of Eli, uh, financially or socially, they did their own thing, and if you didn't like it, they told you to pound sand, basically. The average Israelite felt helpless, just as the average kid at our boarding school felt absolutely helpless in the face of bullying and abuse. Verse 17, Therefore the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for men abhorred the offering of the Lord. They hated coming to worship, absolutely hated it. Things were bad. A similar reaction happened to Christianity among many of the missionary kids that I grew up with in boarding school. Rather than taking their troubles to the Lord, which is what they should have done, uh, they turned bitter against the Lord and eventually abandoned the faith. And I do not justify in any way their overreaction, but it's certainly understandable because it was an issue of association. They associated Christianity with all of the horrible things that they had experienced, and emotionally it was tough to separate the emotions of those two different things. They Anyway, that's what was happening to the Israelites here. They abhorred the worship of God, because of the lifestyle of those who led in worship. Look at verse 22. Now, Eli was very old, and he heard everything his sons did to all Israel and how they lay with the women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Now, they were married, so this was adultery, but it was actually more than adultery, it was abuse. It was taking advantage of these women. I I won't keep reading... But verse 25 indicates that they were so self-willed and stiff-necked in their sin and rebellion that God wanted to kill them. That's what the text says. It wouldn't surprise me if some of those women wanted to kill them. Uh, It was really a horrible environment. They were a mess, to put it mildly. How could Hannah have sent her just weaned child into an environment like that? It was a pornographic environment. It was a dangerous environment for Samuel. It was very dangerous. Second, How could an ideal mother place her son under the poor parenting style of Eli? Yes, Eli was a godly man in many ways, but he was an absolutely lousy parent. And I blame Samuel's similarly poor parenting on the fact that he grew up learning these bad behaviors from Eli. So what makes me think that Eli did not parent well? Well, first, like many modern parents that I know, Eli was quick to be critical of other people's sins, but he tended to cover for his own family's sins. Uh, And you will never have what it takes to restrain your children if you're like Eli in this regard. Uh, Just as Scripture calls us to be harder on ourselves. Than we are on others. I believe the scripture calls us to take the log out of the eyes of our own family so that we will be prepared to take the splinter out of the eyes of other families. But Eli did not do that. Let me demonstrate that to you. Without any investigation, he accuses Hannah of being drunk in chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. He does that as soon as he sees evidence of drunkenness, when she's actually engaged in deep, travailing prayer. So he's quick to judge others. In this case, it was a misjudgment. Now contrast that with how he handles his own sons. This is chapter 2, beginning at verse 22. Now Eli was very old, and he heard everything his sons did to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. So he said to them, "'Why do you do such things? "'For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. "'No, my sons, for it is not a good report that I hear. "'You make the Lord's people transgress. "'If one man sins against another, God will judge him. "'But if a man sins against the Lord, "'who will intercede for him? "'Nevertheless, they did not heed the voice of their father, "'because the Lord desired to kill them.'" Now in verse 22, God says that Eli had to hear about it from others. And Eli himself admits how non-observant he was when he says in verse 23, for I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. Now, I find that phrase, from all the people, very interesting because it reveals two things about him. The first thing that it shows is that he was somewhat resistant to the reports that have been coming in over the years, and it was only after there has been constant reports and a momentum that was building before he believed it and began chewing them out. If he, otherwise, he would have chewed them out a lot earlier. Um, this is the nature of bureaucracies. It took forever for the sexual abuse in our boarding school to get exposed. Adults had a hard time believing it. Okay? They were in denial, and the kids who reported things were left even more vulnerable. Well, in the same way, Eli is somewhat resistant to the initial criticisms of his children until everybody gets on his case. The second thing that this phrase shows is how long it has taken him for for him to be convinced. If all the people have been reporting this behavior, there's a process of time. How many years has this been going on? It's clear that for a long time he had been oblivious to their sins. He's been overlooking their abuse. And how many young women were taken advantage of during those years? A second major hole in Eli's parenting was that he tried to reason with his children rather than restraining his children. This is a huge problem in modern fathering and mothering, even in the homeschool movement. Look at verse 23. In verse 23 he says, Why do you do such things? He's obviously disappointed in his sons. He's obviously trying to convince them that what they're doing is not right. But asking a fool why he's engaged in folly is asking, like asking a circle why it's round, right? Proverbs fourteen twenty four says, The foolishness of fools is folly. You don't need to ask why, you need to recognize it and deal with it. And the Scripture indicates that there are two ways that you need to deal with it. The first way is to apply the Scripture prayerfully, asking God to supernaturally take that Scripture, which is sharper than any two-edged sword, and begin changing the heart of your child. You can't change it, but you can apply the Scripture, ask God to change it, and then secondly, you need to engage in loving uh, discipline and uh, the discipline should come from a parent, not a dorm parent. Now, I will admit that some of us kids probably drove our dorm parents absolutely nuts. I mean, we were, you, you have, you know, one pair of dorm parents for 100 kids uh, who are rowdy. Yeah, we, we drove them absolutely bonkers, but it seems that they did not know how to Um, apply the word of God in our lives or to discipline in love. Instead, they disciplined in absolute frustration, often leaving us kids bleeding and black and blue from shoulder to our feet. I mean, it was criminal abuse. No kidding. It was criminal abuse. Now, Eli erred in the opposite direction, giving no discipline. That also is evil. And I should point out that God does not hold Eli accountable for their unregenerate heart. That's totally on them. We can't regenerate our children's hearts. That's on them. He holds Eli accountable for failing to confront sin with the Word of God, and secondly, for failing to restrain their evil. And the rod of discipline has that goal. Proverbs twenty-two fifteen 15 promises, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, the rod of correction will drive it far from him. And that is true, whether the child is regenerate or unregenerate, that's immaterial. Okay? Only God can change the heart, but fathers and mothers can bring the means of grace into the child's lives, and they can also use the rod of discipline lovingly, and it will drive foolishness from that child, whether regenerate or unregenerate. Now, this was David's fault as well in 1 Kings 1. He never brought pain into his children's lives, is what the text says. He protected them from pain. And if the same can be said of you, it'll be a miracle if your children do not turn out as badly as David's did, and as Eli's did, and as Samuel's children's did. But that brings us to the third gaping hole in Eli's parenting, which is shown in verses 23 through 25. He blows up and he yells at them, he vents his frustration, and interestingly, his sons ignore him. Why? Well, they know from experience that dad's bark is much worse than his bite. Okay? He's not going to follow through, right? They're adults now. They've probably been through this ritual many times in their lifetime, and they're probably thinking, you know, Dad couldn't bear to see us kicked out of office. You know, we'll just ignore him. It'll be just the same as it's always been. It'll be okay. And so when Eli says, no, my sons, it has no impact upon them. They've probably heard this no a thousand times, and they've usually been able to get around it. No did not mean no to Eli, at least not in terms of follow-through. And in case you think that he couldn't do anything to his adult sons, that is absolutely false. We'll be reading under the next point, Deuteronomy 21, uh, and show that he could at least do that. But here I just want to emphasize that any time you moms and dads demonstrate more bark than you do bite, you've already started the process of losing your children. Blowing up at your kids is a sure sign you've already lost the battle. It's a sure sign you are weak and they are strong. It's a sure sign you're neither in control of yourself nor in control of your children. You cannot restrain the evil of your children uh, if they know only to take you seriously when you blow up and get mad, uh, because eventually they're going to figure out, you know, getting my parents mad at me doesn't really have too much consequence. Okay? Fourth gaping hole in Eli's theology of parenting was that they had become more important to him than God. He thought, well, I love my kids. And they had become more important. Now, if you told Eli that, he would deny it. He'd say, no way, God is way more important to me than my children. But his actions show otherwise, and the text makes it very, very clear. If you look at verse 29, God asks Eli, why do you kick at my sacrifice and my offering, which I have commanded in my dwelling place? And get this phrase, "'and honor your sons more than me "'to make yourselves fat "'with the best of all the offerings of Israel, my people.'" And you might think, Eli didn't have a choice. These are grown, these are adults. You know, he can't do anything. But that is simply not true. He had the authority as the high priest to remove them from office as being disqualified, and all of the elders would have backed them up. He would have backed Eli up. And he also had an option of taking his sons to the civil magistrates for their criminal behavior, and what they were doing was indeed criminal behavior and them receiving punishment from the magistrates. If I can't deal with them, maybe the civil magistrate will. Deuteronomy is quite clear on that. It says this, "'If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son "'who will not obey the voice of his father "'or the voice of his mother, "'and who, when they have chastened him, "'will not heed them,' Then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of his city, to the gate of his city, and they shall say to the elders of his city, This son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all of the men of his city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall put away the evil from among you, and all Israel shall hear and fear. Now, it would have been hard for Eli to do that because it would have been an admission of the utter failure of his parenting. But it's hard as well because parents love their children. They don't want to see their children die. It's hard because parents long to have their children respect them and love them. But interestingly, in Matthew 15 and in Mark 7, Jesus appeals to this law and an even stricter law that says that if you cannot restrain your children from cursing you... You need to take them to the civil magistrate. Jesus is upholding that law and those passages, and he's saying, if you don't, you are honoring man more than you honor God. So Jesus was accusing the Pharisees of his day of being just like Eli in their parenting. Now, if Jesus says that we ought to honor God more than our children on even the worst-case scenario of Deuteronomy 21, then how much more so when when it's much earlier than that, uh, th- that uh, worst-case scenario was needed. It does not honor God to have homeschool children who are holy terrors in church. It does not honor God when your children will be disrespectful to other parents and you do nothing about it. It is uh, because parents want their children to like them that they often refuse to restrain them. But we really need to be much more concerned about what God likes than what our children like. If we don't close that gaping hole in our parenting, it will become exceedingly hard to enforce a no by restraining our children. Now, related to this is the next gaping hole in his parenting, Eli was overly driven by a desire to protect his children from harm and pain. this is a very interesting point here. Even when he rebukes them, he does it by way of warning them, you better watch out or you might get disciplined by the Lord. Rather than seeing discipline as a a godly thing, as a tool for righteousness that we need to be using, he sees it as something to be avoided at all costs. And you are making the same mistake when you warn your kids, you better quit doing that or you're going to get a spanking. What is that saying? It is saying that avoiding a spanking is more important than first-time obedience. That's exactly what you're training them exactly what you're training them. If your goal is to keep your children from getting spankings, you have already missed the heart of the matter, and you need to go to parenting class with the foxes. Eli was not (laughs) a model parent, okay? Now, though for the most part Eli was godly, he did model at least some evil to his children, and this is another gaping hole in his parenting. They picked up his small compromises and they amplified them. And by the way, because Eli was Samuel's adoptive parent, Samuel picked up Eli's bad parenting habits as well. Uh, Do not idealize Samuel's being taken from his birth parents and given to Eli. It was not a good thing. He picked up all kinds of bad habits. Samuel's desire really was to please God, and these were blind spots. They were just a part of his life that he didn't recognize, And in 1 Samuel 8, we find that Samuel followed Eli's example of permissive parenting, and his kids turned out horrible, so horrible that the people insisted on impeaching the sons of Samuel, and they needed to be impeached. That was a good thing that they were engaged in there. They needed to be thrown out of office. But it all started with Eli. In verse 35, Eli was said to not be totally faithful in his priestly duties. There was a little bit of compromise. For example, in verse 29, we see that Eli modeled taking more than his fair share of the sacrifices, and he modeled indulgence, and modeled that if it tastes good, you eat it, even though God had said, no, 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 this is reserved for me. But they said, we really like it, so we're going to eat it. And uh, verse 16 rebukes the sons for eating the fat that should have been given to God. But where did they learn that? It wasn't just them. In verse 29, God rebukes Eli, saying, to make yourselves fat. Notice he's including Eli, and we learn from chapter 4 that Eli was very obese. To make yourselves fat with the best of all the offerings of Israel, my people. They were all fat. Now, the picture in your outline doesn't reflect that. Uh, I couldn't find a a, a picture of an obese um, uh, Eli, but if you read in chapter 4, I think it's verse 18, you will see that it says he was exceedingly heavy. (laughs) exceedingly heavy. And it wasn't a hormone thing. It was a making yourselves fat thing is what God says. Okay. So Eli had a hard time restraining indulgence in his sons because he himself was indulgent. He had a hard time restraining their theft because he had taken in maybe smaller ways, things that didn't belong to him. But he thought, well, it's okay, I'm a priest. He had a hard time restraining their compromises because he was compromised in some small areas as way. We see this all the time. I have talked to Christian parents who are okay with their kids petting and engaging in other sexual compromises because they say, well, you know, we did it too when we were younger, and it seemed like it turned out okay for us. No, we cannot think that way. Our character is going to be amplified in our children, and our children need to recognize Dad and mom are humble enough to confess their sins. Yes, we made mistakes, and yes, we made sins, but they're willing to confess them and say, kids, don't repeat our mistakes. Here's the dangerous things that came out of our behavior. So that's what needs to really take place. But anyway, that's the sixth gaping hole in Eli's fatherhood. And the last thing I want to highlight was that Eli failed to be God-centered in his parenting. As part of God's judgment on Eli, God says in verse 35... "...then I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. I will build him a sure house, and he shall walk before my anointed forever." And there are two phrases there that speak about this God-centered living. Uh, The last phrase, he shall walk before my anointed forever, commentators point out it's not just talking about walking before David, this is pointing forward to the anointed Jesus, Uh, In the future. So it's a phrase that's basically indicating he's going to walk before the face of the Lord. Uh, This is Calvin's desire in life to constantly uh, live in God's presence. The other phrase, who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind, also shows a God centered focus that the next priest will have. Okay? But Eli wasn't that God focused. And it's for those seven reasons I say it was irresponsible for Hannah to dedicate Samuel to the tabernacle and to expect Eli to parent him. If I were Elkanah, her husband, I would have immediately nullified her vow per Numbers chapter 30. And if you're not familiar with that, men, you better read Numbers chapter 30. It gives you the authorization to nullify any vow that's taken by your wife or your children if you hear it on the day that that vow was uttered. Otherwise, both of you are responsible to carry through on that vow. Alcana had to have known what was going on at the tabernacle, so I don't think he was a model father or that she was a model mother in dedicating her son to the tabernacle. I think too many stories about Hannah completely gloss over this bad side of her character. All they focus on is her devotion, and she did have devotion to the Lord. We'll look at that. But before we get to her devotion and her noteworthy characteristics that we can imitate, uh, let me get into her family background a bit first thing I want you to notice about her background is she was a pastor's wife. First Chronicles 6 verses 22 through 27 give Elkanah's genealogy and shows that he was a Levite who came from the very important order of Kohath. And so Elkanah may very well have helped in the tabernacle with some of the duties surrounding the festival. As a priest, he would have been required to do so, but it does appear that he actually did do so. Anyway, Moses ensured that the Levites were scattered throughout Israel uh, so that um, they could, every community would have preachers. Every community had a synagogue. Every community had at least one Levite that could bring the word of God that was there. And we know from later years, the Kohathites were especially used to leading music, and prayer and praise in the assembly. They were musicians, trained. In any case, when Elkanah's grandfather Zoph was called an Ephraimite in 1 Samuel 1, verse 1, he's not from the tribe of Ephraim by blood. He's a citizen of Ephraim. He was living in Ephraim, but it's clear he was a Levite. Otherwise, he would not have been able to serve in the tabernacle. And the law stated that the people were supposed to financially help their Levitical pastor to attend at least three festivals a year to help with the distribution of the sacrament. And this passage indicates he only came up once a year. But according to the law, uh, coming to the tabernacle was required so as to accompany their entire local church that would travel to Jerusalem. In other words, their local synagogue... And uh, his family was a part of the flock, but their family was not the only ones that he ministered to. He ministered to his entire church. Point is, Hannah was a pastor's wife, and as a pastor's wife, she would have had a lot of extra responsibilities. Now, there are some troubling aspects to Elkanah's pastoring and shepherding ministry as well. First of all, he was a bigamist, uh, a kind of polygamist. Two, two, Two wives, right? Bigamist. Pastors were only supposed to have one wife. I think that is, I proved that, I think, beyond any shadow of a doubt when we preached on the Song of Solomon and the life of, of David. This has always been God's intention. But Elkanah was living in a time of downgrade when even the priests in the tabernacle were somewhat compromised. And so, by comparison to them, he may have thought, you know, if you're comparing your righteousness horizontally, you can feel pretty good, even if you're not really good. He probably thought it was no big deal, but polygamy has always been a big deal. Without exception, all polygamous marriages in the Bible had problems. Second, Elkanah showed favoritism to Hannah, which only made the conflict between those two wives worse. Favoritism, especially when it comes to the Holy Sacrament, is not becoming of a pastor. Now he may have done this because he felt bad for her barrenness, but that's not a good excuse for favoritism. And, and by the way, there are two indicators that Hannah was the first wife, and that Elkanah only married Penina to ensure that his uh, line would not be wiped out. Uh, Hannah is mentioned first in verse two, and Penina is called her rival in verse six, and Leviticus 1818 18 uses that term "rival" to indicate a second wife who's now competing with the first wife. So I think just as a side note, that 's why I believe that she was married first. Now the third area that shows that things weren't quite as good as they could have been in his pastoring, I've already mentioned, is that Alcana only came to Jerusalem once a year. That's implied in the first verses of chapter 1, it's made explicit in verses 21-23, through 23. and so this shows some compromise as well because there was a clear-cut command in, the, in, in Exodus 23-14 which says, "...three times in the year all your males shall appear before the Lord God." He failed to obey that command. But compared to the compromises happening in the tabernacle, Elkanah was a faithful pastor. Uh, You know, it's possible, and some people think this, he may have been demotivated from coming to Jerusalem precisely because the tabernacle was so corrupted. You know, it says that the the, the people of Israel abhorred uh, the worship. And um, uh, even though it's going to be a few years probably before the word Ichabod is used which means the glory has departed. Really they were living in a time when the glory of God had departed. Okay now we come to some very positive things that we see in Hannah's life. For she and her husband had a deep deep love for the Lord. You can have blind spots in your lives and still be a great Christian. Still love the Lord uh, deeply. She loved the Lord. In verse 11, she calls herself the Lord's maidservant. Same verse shows that she was willing to sacrifice her child to the Lord by making him a Nazarite from the womb, perhaps inspired by an earlier prophet uh, by uh, by the name of, um, a judge by the name of Samson. In chapter 2, we have a beautiful prophetic song of Hannah, which is filled with good theology and solid worship and God-centeredness, and trust in the Lord, and commitment to righteousness, and antithesis. I mean, I love the hymn of Hannah. It reflects a deep love for the Lord and a trust in the Lord. So I hope I have not painted (laughs) such a a dark picture of, of Hannah so far that you miss the beautiful things that are in her life that are painted really in bold letters. For example, it's obvious that Hannah and Elkanah had a deep love for each other. Uh, I picture Elkanah as having married her for love and having married Penina for children. Not a good plan, um, but there's plenty of evidence that he loved Hannah passionately and that her love for him was just as strong. Chapter 1, verse 5 says, But to Hannah he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah. Uh, yes, it shows favoritism, but it reveals the fact that he loved her for who she was, not just for children but for who she was, and he wanted her to be secure in his love for her. Now verse 8 may seem like a strange way to cheer up your wife over her barrenness. Uh, I kind of cringed when I read that that verse. And sometimes we men are not as sensitive as we should be to our husbands. I think all of us need to learn how to grow in emotional leadership. But go ahead and look at verse 8. He says, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart grieved? Am I not better to you than ten sons? Now that statement may seem insensitive and arrogant to Western ears, but consider this as a possibility. If she had repeatedly told him that she loved him better than ten sons, this whole thing reads a little bit uh, differently. Uh, And it must have cheered her up because prior to his saying this, She didn't want to eat, and after saying it, verse 9 says she did eat. And so those words that made me cringe didn't seem to make her cringe, okay? They cheered her up. And so what some commentators have said, as strange as these words may seem to us, um, there must have been something positive. Maybe he was just lightheartedly saying, look, I love you deeply. You have said you love me better than ten sons. Um, Why can't you be happy in what the Lord has provided for you? I'm not going to be dogmatic on that, but it's more likely than not that this was a positive thing that he said. But one of the key things that everyone notes about Hannah is her deep longing for motherhood. The Bible makes this deep longing a good and godly thing. It's not natural to desire no children, and it is quite natural to feel great sadness and weeping when you have difficulty having children. We need to learn to weep with those who weep. Let me quote from John MacArthur on this point, because I think he says it very well. He says, Of course, the Bible's exaltation of motherhood is often scorned by our more enlightened age. In fact, in this generation, motherhood is frequently derided and belittled, even in the name of women's rights. But it has been God's plan from the beginning that women should train and nurture godly children and thus leave a powerful imprint on society through the home. 1 Timothy 5.10, Titus 2, 3-5. Hannah is a classic illustration of how that works. She is a reminder that mothers are the makers of men and the architects of the next generation. Her earnest prayer for a child was the beginning of a series of events that helped turn back the spiritual darkness and backsliding in Israel. She set in motion a chain of events that would ultimately usher in a profound spiritual awakening at the dawn of the Davidic dynasty. Scripture frequently portrays marriage as quote, the grace of life, unquote, 1 Peter 3, verse 7. And motherhood, as the highest calling any woman could ever be summoned to. It is, after all, the one vocation that God uniquely designed women to fulfill, and no man can ever intrude into the mother's role. Perhaps you have already noticed how the glory and dignity of motherhood stood out in one way or another as a major theme in the life of every woman we have dealt with so far. That is true of most of the key women in Scripture. Scripture honors them for their faithfulness in their own homes. Now, another good characteristic that we should imitate is that she was an earnest prayer warrior. Um, She knew how to pray with intensity, and there are four points that show the God-centeredness and the godly character of her prayers. First of all, she recognized that God alone is the giver of children, and this leads her to intense prayer before the Lord. Indeed, it was so intense that some people have characterized her prayer as very much like the prayer of Anna in the New Testament, travailing in prayer. Now, I'm going to read verses 8 through 18 again, and then I'm going to dissect it. Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, "'Hannah, why do you weep? "'Why do you not eat? "'And why is your heart grieved? "'Am I not better to you than ten sons?' "'So Hannah arose after they had finished eating "'and drinking in Shiloh. "'Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat "'by the doorpost of the tabernacle of the Lord, "'and she was in bitterness of soul "'and prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish. "'Then she made a vow and said, "'O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look "'on the affliction of your maidservant "'and remember me and not forget your maidservant,' "'but will give your maidservant a male child, "'and I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, "'and no razor shall come upon his head.' "'And it happened, as she continued praying before the Lord, "'that Eli watched her mouth. "'Now Hannah spoke in her heart, only her lips moved, "'but her voice was not heard. "'Therefore Eli thought she was drunk. "'So Eli said to her, "'How long will you be drunk? "'Put your wine away from you.' "'But Hannah answered and said, "'No, my Lord, I am a woman of sorrowful spirit.' I have drunk neither wine nor intoxicating drink, but have poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant a wicked woman, for out of the abundance of my complaint and grief I have spoken until now. Then Eli answered and said, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition which you have asked of him. And she said, Let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Now, verse 12 says she continued in prayer, and the word, the Hebrew word for continued, is rabah, uh, which means to be strong, multiplied, great, growing, expanding. It, it speaks of intensity of prayer, but also the expansion of the soul in prayer. I personally believe that the Spirit of God Himself was stirring up her prayers for this child, and she was agonizing as she prayed in the Spirit. She was travailing. She was giving birth to some kingdom realities in her prayer. And in this she is a model, as was Anna. It's okay to weep and agonize with the Lord over things that are wrong in this world. It's okay. Next, she was so consumed with prayer before the Lord, she didn't even notice the circumstances around her. Okay, The intensity of her prayer caught the attention of Eli, who may have thought she was acting like his drunken sons, and maybe like some of the uh, other promiscuous woman that his sons committed adultery with, Eli's sensitivity, insensitivity, I should say, made him jump to a wrong conclusion rather than asking questions. She was praying with, in groanings which cannot be uttered. She was not doing this to be seen or doing this out of ritual. Her heart was connecting with God's heart, and the Spirit, no doubt, prompted this prayer. Next, she was so focused on God in this prayer that even when falsely accused of horrible sin, she didn't take it pridefully and react in anger. Verse 15, But Hannah answered and said, No, my Lord, I am a woman of sorrowful spirit. I have neither drunk wine nor intoxicating drink, but have poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant a wicked woman, for out of the abundance of my complaint and grief I have spoken until now. This shows... Humility and honesty without prideful blowing up at him. He, he's just insulted her big time, okay? She calmly responds, and it shows she's more focused on what God thinks than what man thinks, and I think it's another good characteristic. Another good characteristic of Hannah is that she was willing to sacrifice for the Lord. People who are sold out to the Lord, like my parents were as missionaries in Ethiopia are willing to sacrifice what is nearest and dearest to their heart if they believe that God has called them to do that. And I appreciate that about my parents, and I appreciate that about Hannah. And her willingness to sacrifice what was nearest and dearest to her heart can be seen in her vow. Now, her vow by itself is not wrong. It's good to dedicate our children to the Lord. It was the specifics of the vow and how she chose to fulfill the vow that I find fault with not the unselfish willingness to give this child to the Lord. I think that's commendable. It shows a transition from wanting a child to submitting this desire to God himself. Verse 11, Then she made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a male child, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall come upon his head. That appears to be a Nazarite vow. We have only two other instances where a person was a lifelong Nazirite, Samson and John the Baptist. And in both those cases, God called for it, not the mother. For God to call a person to be a lifelong Nazirite is one thing, for a mother to insist on it is another. But I think she sincerely thinks this is the right thing to do. And given her time period, her vow may have been inspired by God's call for Samson to be a lifelong Nazirite. Now, she obviously wanted him... To be a godly man who would serve God, uh, would glorify Him, that's a good thing. But she took it upon herself to declare what his vocation would be, and I'm not sure that a mother has the authority to do that, unless this was prophetic in some way, and I'm not sure from the context that we could say that that is the case. But I do admire her willingness to sacrifice the very thing that meant so much to her. She's giving to the Lord what is near and dear to her heart, and I appreciate that and I appreciate the same sacrificial motivation of my parents on the mission field. They were serving the Lord the best that they knew how. But I do want to end with her being a woman of faith. Obviously, the points we've already covered show her to be a woman of faith, but there is more. That she was praying in faith can be seen by the fact that God hears and answers her prayers through the prophecy of Eli. And I find it a huge comfort that God does not require us to be perfect before He answers our prayers. It's very comforting. Verse 17, Then Eli answered and said, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition which you have asked of Him. Now God only answers the prayers of faith, so to me the conclusion is she prayed this in faith. Second, she believes Eli's prophecy before she is even pregnant. Hearing Eli's prophecy is all that it took to make the pain disappear and for her to lose her sadness. She obviously has faith that God has answered her prayer. Verse 18 ends, So the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. That shows faith. If God says it, I'm going to believe it. Oh, that we would have that kind of faith. If God says it in the Bible, he gives us a promise, we're going to believe it no matter how difficult that promise, how impossible that promise may appear to be. And then she had a child by faith shortly after this. Now, God is the one who sovereignly gives faith when it's his uh, sovereign time to act. We cannot manufacture faith. Scripture says it's a gift of God. Acts 3.16, Romans 12.3, 1 Corinthians 12.9, etc., etc., Uh, But it is a gift that is given to those who at least approach His throne. God delights to pour out faith and other gifts as we approach uh, His throne in prayer. And I've been telling the elders and the deacons recently that I have been uh, convicted, I need to approach the throne of grace much more frequently. Hannah and Anna are models to me. But the biggest evidence of her faith is in her prophetic poem that we're going to be singing afterwards. I think it is a masterpiece of praise that flows from faith. You could spend weeks preaching on that poem. It is absolutely packed. It shows faith in a future Messiah, Jesus, and a faith that worships God presently as Savior and Creator and Judge she acknowledges God's holiness, goodness, sovereignty, wisdom, and power. And because we don't have much time, I'm only going to say just a few words on this poem. But uh, keep in mind, she is praying this as she was leaving her son behind. Okay? It's a prayer of rejoicing and faith despite losing something that is near and dear to her heart. But she seems to prophetically know that God's going to do mighty things through Samuel. Chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. I smile at my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. She is walking above the persecution and the criticism that she has been receiving from Penina. Verse 2, No one is holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. There is no one like God. He is incomparable. She is realizing that her baby is not her rock. Her husband is not her rock. Her own holiness is not her rock. Okay? There is none who can measure up to the Lord. She's had a huge transformation in her perspective by this time. Verse 3, Talk no more so very proudly. Let no arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is the God of knowledge, and by Him actions are weighed. When we come face to face with God, we realize that we are nothing, nothing, and the opinions of others is nothing. She knows she can't take credit for anything. Everything must be measured in light of Jehovah. He is sovereign, and as the next verses say, he sovereignly reverses human situations. The bows of the mighty are broken, and those who stumbled are girded with strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, and the hungry have ceased to hunger. Even the barren has borne seven, and she who has many children has become feeble. She acknowledges God is the one who made her barren, and God is the one who's now going to multiply her children. He reverses these and many other fortunes of men and women. And so basically, she has become okay with God's sovereignty. She can rejoice in his reversals, and it takes faith to do that. Verse 6, the Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and brings up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and lifts up. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the beggar from the ash heap to set them among princes and make them inherit the throne of glory. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and He has set the world upon them. Every phrase is just packed with meaning. But it's clear that God is sovereign over everything in life and in death. He blesses the, disadvantages, the disadvantaged, And he takes away blessings from the arrogant. And by the way, this poem shows that she was educated. She's very skilled at poetry. Uh, In the Hebrew, it's very, very fine poetry. Women in Bible days had a good education. Verse 9, he will guard the feet of his saints, but the wicked shall be silent in darkness, for by strength no man shall prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. From heaven he will thunder against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. So the whole song tells of God's grace to an undeserving people. Though she still has a rival in Penina, Penina's nasty jabs no longer make her bitter, which means Penina can no longer control her. When we're bitter, we're being controlled by others. Though she's dropping off her son, she exults in God's provision for them both. In fact, God has brought her to a place where God is more important to her than her son is. This prayer is really a prayer of surrender. She has surrendered the thing that had previously become more important to her than anything else in life, a child. She has surrendered Samuel to the Lord, and though there are many other ways she could have done that, you've at least got to appreciate her heart and her faith here. And her faith is infectious. It seems to have captured Samuel's heart. Though he will no doubt be sad at the separation as well. The last verse of chapter 1 says, he worshipped the Lord there. Now the Hebrew is not they, as the New King James renders it. It's a masculine singular, it's he. It's he is worshipping. Samuel didn't stop to feel sorry for himself. He worshipped even though he was going to be left behind. In chapter 2, verse 11, it says, but the child ministered to the Lord before Eli the priest. So his focus is on his next tasks... And his next tasks involved ministering to the Lord in the tabernacle. And verses 18 through 21 indicate that both Samuel and his mother continued to grow in faith and in God's grace. But Samuel ministered before the Lord even as a child wearing a linen ephod. Moreover, his mother used to make him a little robe and bring it to him year by year when she came up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. And Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, the Lord give you descendants from this woman for the loan that was given to the Lord. Then they would go to their own home. And the Lord visited Hannah so that she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, the child Samuel grew before the Lord. Now what could have been a disaster was turned by God into growth for Hannah and growth for Samuel. And many in the boarding school that I grew up in were able to thrive in God's grace despite miserable circumstances. When handed lemon, make lemonade. Now, I don't want to be trite with that expression because some of the people had exceedingly difficult time making lemonade. I think you would too if you were physically and sexually abused. You'd have an incredibly hard time doing that. Uh, But God's grace can help us to grow through pain, believe it or not. And I highly recommend two books by Kay Arthur. One is Lord, Heal My Hurts. And the other one is Lord, Only You Can Change Me. She was a woman who went through sexual and other kinds of abuse, huge abuse. She knows what it means to overcome the emotional pain, not through carnal weapons, but through the weapons of God, which are mighty for tearing down strongholds. Satan can use a family member or a friend like Panina, to bring great pain to control our hearts until we learn not to be controlled. And Kay Arthur's two books are a great place to start. I'm going to end with two more applications. First, be careful what you vow. Now, it's important to fulfill our vows, but it's also important that we not make vows too hastily, especially in an emotional crisis. Numbers 30, verse 6 warns against rash vows. Ecclesiastes 4, 4 through 5 says, when you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it, for He has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed. Better not to vow than to vow and not pay. So here's a question that people have asked me quite a number of times. What do I do if I made a promise that is a sinful promise to keep? This was something that really consumed a lot of the people who came to faith during the time of the Reformation. They had made vows as Roman Catholics that would actually be a sin to continue to keep. What in the world do you do in that situation? Well, we repent of those vows. There is a whole theology of repenting of those sinful vows, and I want to recommend a book on this. It's G.I. Williamson, and um, he has a, a chapter that gives a great theology of repenting of sinful vows, and the book is called Wine in the Bible and the Church. It may seem like a totally irrelevant topic, but he's got a great chapter in there. And so, yes, there is guilt for breaking even a sinful vow, but there is greater guilt in keeping the vow. So, for example, Jephthah made a rash vow. The first thing that comes out of the house, I'm going to sacrifice if you give me a victory... God gave him a victory. The first thing that came out was his daughter, and he sacrificed his daughter. Now, Jephthah thought that he was morally obligated to keep his vow. The reformers to a man would have said he was morally obligated to repent of that vow. It was a rash vow. The second lesson is that setting our hearts on something in creation can easily rob us of our joy in the Lord. This is an important lesson. It's what happened to Hannah at the beginning. She was almost consumed in an idolatrous way with having a child. Having a child became more important to her than anything else. It was only when she surrendered to the Lord the very thing that was most dear and most near to her heart that she found joy in God alone. And then God added blessing upon blessing with five more children. When you have a steward's heart, he can trust you with more stewardship. Now let me make a clarification here of what it means to dedicate everything to the Lord. God can enable you to leave your husband, leave your wife, leave your children, your house, your lands, and everything else without physical abandonment. What Mark 10 calls for is not husbands and wives to physically abandon each other, but rather to give each other to the Lord. And when we do that, God then, He says, gives back your spouse and your children and your house as a stewardship trust, and from that point on, you relate to your spouse or to your children as God's property. You relate to them as God wants you to relate to them. It completely changes the paradigm, and God enables you to enjoy them 100-fold. That's the best way to dedicate your children and your husband to God. But the same passage says when we do the opposite, when we put something in creation first and foremost... God is in the habit of putting us last and making us miserable. He says, but many who are first will be last and the last first. So the way to have your joy elevated as Hannah's was is to put God first and to relinquish your idols, whatever those idols are. May each of us find great joy in doing so. Amen. Father, again, I want to thank you for putting into the Bible the stories of people who were broken, people who were hurting, uh, people who had idols in their lives and at the same time believed in you, trusted in you, loved you, loved you deeply. And Father, I know that this uh, people here loves you, and yet there is a lot of hurt a lot of brokenness, and I pray that you would bring your supernatural healing into their lives as they cast their cares upon you, as they look to you to be first and foremost, as they put you first in their lives. I pray, Father, that we would grow in you as a result of looking at Hannah, that we would not judge her, but at the same time, that we would not repeat her mistakes. Help us, Father, to grow in you. In Jesus' name, amen.